Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash Futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Thomas, we just wrapped up a fantastic interview with Matt Genovese, and it took a number of fascinating uh, twists and turns. He runs a company called uh, Planorama Design, and he has rather a deep background, uh, much deeper than I realized. So when I read his bio, I was thinking, okay, so he's a UI UX guy. He's probably got some software engineering chops. Now, he used to work in formal verification of semiconductors and uh, was writing assembly in middle school. So he's got a very serious technical chops and a really fascinating perspective on generative AI and the the ways it will impact coding and application development and the, the way people interface with software. So were there a couple of major high points uh, in the conversation for you? Well, the fact that he lives in Brazil is giving him much more of a global perspective on things. But um, I liked his answer on when I asked him about uh, um, if if we're we're just going to see fewer and fewer programmers in the world, or if we actually set our sights on bigger and bigger things to accomplish. And he tended to agree that we're probably going to be aiming towards the bigger and bigger things to accomplish, which um, I think that becomes kind of a natural evolution for this. Yeah, it's it's too easy to start predicting the doom and gloom and start getting headlines over all these jobs going to go away and all these programmers won't have jobs in the future. And that's just not how it usually works. So, um, yeah. And, uh, so that's, that's, that's just one of them. But I, I think his overall perspective on this is, is really quite fascinating. It was interesting that he and I shared a number of parallel, um, conclusions. So, you know, he noted in the interview that he thinks eventually you're just going to make applications on the fly, which is something I've been thinking about a lot as well. So I mentioned in the interview that I don't know any small business person who doesn't have an idea for an app that would make some part of their their business easier, but it's so prohibitively expensive to get into it. And I think that in the future, it will be possible to just summon those applications. And so it's it's fascinating to, to think about how that will impact the application ecosystem going forward. When you no longer have to hire a team of developers to put together a uh, messaging application for your business or something to track invoices or whatever. If, if QuickBooks is just too much for you, what will that actually mean? And it was, it was fun kind of kicking that around with him. Yeah, he's um, he has a wealth of uh, knowledge in the background there. Um, starting with the Commodore 64 and even before then uh, coming into today's world, I, I relate to that quite well. So uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I never did have a Commodore 64. I had uh, even worse computers to start with. So, <laughs> well, you're both much the older TI. than I am. You're you're both much older than I am. So I'm going to go Google Commodore 64. <laughs> so I know what you're talking about. While I'm doing that, <laughs> listeners, I hope you enjoy episode 137 with Matt Genovese.
Tonight, we're joined by Matt Genovese. Matt is the CEO of Planorama Design, a software user experience design professional services company based in Austin, Texas. With over 25 years of experience in high tech, spanning semiconductors to software, Matt has a long track record of launching successful products. He and his team at Planorama design simple and intuitive software from otherwise complex software or IoT systems and simultaneously accelerate time to market while reducing internal costs for their clients. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to share it with your friends. And in the meantime, check out our website, futureaudiopodcast.com. Matt, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Trent. Pleasure to be here. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today. Sure. Well, uh, geez, where to start? So uh, my background, uh, I, you know, I started as a child uh, and uh, I got into uh, <laughs> computer, computers a long time ago, uh, back on the Commodore VIC-20. And uh, always been part of my life. I was doing assembly language as a kid. Uh, I ended up uh, going to college, university at RIT for computer engineering and coming down working for Motorola down in Austin. And uh, and I spent about the first half of my career in hardware and uh, working on uh, working on, on logic design and verification, which actually turned out to be very useful in, in other ways because you, you end up having to work towards a spec, uh, you know, work on a uh, on a chip that uh, you don't get to send out updates, you know, uh, or if you do, they cost millions and millions of dollars, uh, unlike software. So you, you get a sense for how how important uh, things are, like verification and making sure it works out of the gate and things like that. And I spent the other half of my career in software, and uh, and so I've you know uh, kind of fast forwarding a bit. I I started um, the company I have now, Planorama, uh, which has a, a professional services arm, Planorama Design. Uh, focusing on design of software products, uh, the UX and UI, all the requirements, and, and uh, uh, deploying uh, to DevReady uh, or DevReady documentation for, for development teams. But we also have a, I'll say a, uh, a, a R&D arm where we've been focusing on building applications that solve problems uh, in our space with product development teams. And, uh, you know, I, I've worked at many different software companies and the one challenge I've seen is that they they always tend to struggle with good software documentation, good internal product requirement documentation. Um, you know, uh, agile software and the agile methodology uh, sometimes doesn't sound like it prioritizes documentation. But I would say that documentation is very important if you need to have teams know what to do and to work in a very smooth process. And so... Uh, we've been working on a project, an internal project for ourselves uh, called Symphonia. And the, the idea is to help consolidate the source of truth for uh, product requirements, right? Uh, and uh, all that said, when AI started becoming a bit more prevalent over the past couple of years, I started looking at it and saying, well, how can this help with product requirements? How can this help get us to a point where... Um, you know, we can have solid requirements that the development team, the UX team, the stakeholders, everybody can kind of gather around and understand. And so we built some tools in order to do that. We built uh, a little proof of concept called user story generator.ai uh, 
that helps you write user stories. And we, we built that in, uh, you know, with the results, with the things that we learned from that, we built it into our, our product called Symphonia um, that we're using ourselves. And we, and, you know, again, trying to use AI to assist uh, in the, in the product development process uh, is probably the best way I can say it. And, so so uh, Matt, Matt yeah. uh, a couple of lifetimes ago, I was, um, um an ergonomics engineer human factors engineer doing a lot okay. of similar things to what you're doing right now but uh i was doing it more with hardware than software mm -hmm. now, it, one of the things that struck me is that when chat gpt came out that the the input box is at the bottom of the page that just seems wrong uh, I wanted to get your feedback on that. Is is that wrong? <laughs> asking the asking the big questions here on the future audio podcast. Oh, Where man. should the text yeah, box no. go? Oh god, <laughs> this is if this is what I'm quoted on, I'm going to have to. I'm going to be a very sad person. You know, uh, I I think I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, pick that one to the to the curb and say it depends. <laughs> Uh, you know, and it really does. It depends on what people are used to. Uh, we're seeing a lot of that now. Um, chat applications that people are making tend to just mimic what chat GPT has already created. Uh, um, the, and I, I'm not sure that that is going to be the future. I think it is right now because people are used to it. But uh, I would say that what we're going to have from a user experience point of view is eventually not going to be so forthright with, you know, ask a question, get an answer, ask a question, get an answer. Uh, it, it may be that you're going to use other types of modalities in the UX that are more subdued, that are more, you know, related to how you accomplish your job uh, in in your particular role or, or whatever problem you're trying to solve. And AI will just come to the forefront as you need it. And it won't be so blatant as, as a chat interface. So uh, I, I think the jury's out a bit on how that may progress, but I have a feeling that the integration with these, with of AI into these applications, are going to make it a bit more ubiquitous and a, and a bit more intuitive because your UX tries to make tools that are usable by people and and work within their workflows, work within their mindset, and chat interfaces may not always be the right way to accomplish that, whether it's at the top or the bottom. Yeah, it's, it's occurred to me that we all have cameras on our computers. So um, doing uh, kind of mapping your facial expressions while you're reading through the answers and everything, it could be like a, an instant survey that you're taking and, and then it understands which answers it didn't like and which answers you do like. And and so right. um, I, I find that to be kind of interesting. I think we'll be doing a lot more with that in the future. Um just everything from is it serving up music that we want to listen to and some of the songs we make a bad face at it and it suddenly it changes to something else. Um, yeah, I think we'll see a lot of those things in the future. Yeah, I, I certainly tend to agree that this idea of sentiment analysis is going to play a part, but that has been typically diff quite difficult to achieve. There was a company in, in Austin at one point um, that was working on this before. I mean, this was about 10 years ago and they were uh, uh, working on, on giving sentiment analysis when you're looking at a kiosk, right? And try to understand who you are and what maybe your age is and what you're feeling and present you with advertising, right? That was based on on, on what you presented to the camera. 
Okay. Um, and and uh, that was a very interesting model. And I think they were acquired at the time. And this was, this was quite a number of years ago. Um, but this idea of, of uh, multiple inputs that the, I think the UX is going to change a bit. It is right now, right? We have people looking at, well, how do you incorporate chat interfaces? And, and again, I like I said, I, I don't know that that's going to be the long-term answer. Um, but we may be more conversational, right? You have Whisper that came out. Uh, and other recognition, you have 11 labs with the work they're doing on, on being able to, uh, you know, generate, you know, uh, uh, really good sounding, you know, voice and narration on the fly. Um, with that, people are already experimenting and figuring out, oh, how, how can I make my own Alexa? How can I make my own application uh, that you can engage with in a way that you couldn't before? And initially, I think what happens, people try it out. And then they figure out, okay, was it novel and useful or novel and just novel for novelty's sake? Um, yeah. And then you try to figure out where, where's it going to go? What are people going to be interested in using? Uh, I don't know that you're going to get rid of the keyboard anytime soon. Um, but I, I, I do think people are, are experimenting with what's possible. Well, certainly not on your Commodore 64 that you're still using. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I was so happy they deployed Zoom just in time for our call. Uh, I've been waiting. <laughs> Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. So to, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious about Symphonia, this product that you're developing internally. Uh, sure. Can you tell me a little bit about its its capabilities and whatever design specs that you can divulge? Sure. No, it's it's a tool that we built for ourselves. To be honest, I thought of it years ago when I saw the problems that companies had with keeping all their product requirements straight. You know, part of what we do at Planorama Design, the, our professional services, is really, again, trying to keep organized on behalf of our clients with the UX design, the user stories, test cases. And if we can just keep that under control, well-organized, easy to navigate around, go between, you know, so when you're looking at a user story, you can jump to the designs. Looking at the designs, you can jump to the stories, jump to the test cases. Uh, that makes a big difference for development teams, accelerates them. And so, but we end up using our own, uh, our, our client systems, whatever systems they're they're using, whatever they have available, um, you know, outside of, you know, we bring Figma, we use Figma for the design, but all the other systems for capturing this documentation, uh, it was whatever they, whatever they already used, whether it was Confluence and Jira or whatever it was. And yet I, I felt like, you know, these tools, um, like Jira, for example, great tool for, for uh, um, managing projects, but I don't think it's a really good tool for capturing uh, product requirements, for capturing user stories. You, you tend to have tickets that contain stories or partial stories, and then they kind of float off into the ether after the sprint's done. And how do you keep organized? So, you know, I was thinking of a tool to say, boy, how can we support product managers 
Uh, and again, product teams, but let's just focus on the product managers right now to give them the ability to, to create, uh, create documentation, user stories, to create the, uh, I'll say feature maps or user story maps and, and, uh, you know, have them in one place. When you have them in one place, they can be very connected, right? You can start traversing and figuring out, ah, here's this particular feature map item. This one is related to a user story over here, and this user story is related to this set of designs over in Figma. And so it's all an interconnected graph, mm -hmm. all of these product requirements. But when you have different systems, gosh, it's it's hard to to really you know maintain all of it and keep track, and, and you have to jump around a lot. Um, so I, I didn't feel like anybody was really solving that problem for product managers. Um, and if you solve it for product managers, if you get this well interconnected stack of requirements, well, now the product team benefits, developers benefit, right? They can go and they don't have to go and read the code to figure out how it's supposed to work <laughs> when they're looking at building new features. Like what was done before? Well, many developers I've talked to, they, they go to read the code instead of going to the spec because the spec is out of date, right? Well, what if the spec wasn't out of date? What if the spec was actually correct, right? How much easier would that make their jobs? And so how does that's AI figure into this? Trying... How, how does AI well, figure into this? Well, yeah, it's an interesting point. Uh, originally, when I came up with this, AI was not on the scene in the way it is now. And right. so I had, you know, what I just talked about was the kind of the original concept. When AI came into play, I started looking at, boy, you know, what are the struggles of product managers? And by the way, I, I was in the role of product manager for different companies. So I, I kind of knew some of the answers off the top of my head. But, um, you know, I think product management is a lonely job and uh, <laughs> you tend to be stuck with like, okay, I have to go be an external facing, figure out what the market's doing, research competition. And then you have to go in and write the user story documentation and actually get the team moving because you end up playing that product donor role many times and getting past that blank sheet of paper problem. How do, where do I start? How do I write this? How do I start writing a user story? Um, what features should I consider maybe that are ancillary that I should, you know, do research? All of those things are pro problems that product managers have to, have to face day to day. And we're using AI. And that was the idea was that we could use AI to get them off the ground, right? To get them past that blank sheet, that blank screen, that blank sheet of paper and say, look, we can help you start writing the user story. We can help you start thinking about acceptance criteria. It's a lot easier to edit many times than it is to start from scratch. Yeah. And it and and so that was one of the problems that we were addressing through AI and it worked worked really quite well. And the other one was actually a, um, I didn't quite expect it, but using some of these large language models like the ones that OpenAI provides, you you find that the it, it has a really good uh, really good ideas. It brainstorms quite well. And so when you yeah, so when you start looking at well, what are the features that I need? Sometimes it can come up with some ideas that get you thinking. And, and I have to be clear, we're not advocating that you just go and build the features, right? There, you should do things like user research, like well-understood processes to make sure you're building the right thing and you're prioritizing it and, and those types of things. But it should, it should get you thinking, right? And help you maybe realize what the, what the set of features ought to be that you should consider and and uh, and then start evaluating from there. And that's what we're using the AI for as well, to help you with that brainstorming and then get you to the point where you can do the user research. 
and how, uh, and evaluate how, whether those ideas are good. How much of this is being handled by the AI now? Uh, how much is being handled by for for this this type of generation, this type of uh, right? So, so so is it is it something that humans turn to periodically, or is it handling quite a large fraction of the workload at this point? Well, in in Symphonia, I can tell you about that. We use the model for, I would say, a couple different ways. We use it for brainstorming, and that's where the the large language models are quite useful, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're trained on, you know, everything, right? But I'll also say that, of course, you know, they can be expensive. These mm-hmm. they they charge per thousand tokens, right? It gets to be costly. So we're also investing in in using our own local models for a completely different purpose. It, it there's one part of it where you're going to be brainstorming. And I say, again, the, the, the external models are good for that. But the models, uh, if you're going to be just querying your own content, querying your own project or product descriptions or product requirements, you could do that through the external model too, but you don't need to. You only really, in fact, I think it's vastly overpowered. It's very performant, right? And you pay for it. But uh, you don't need you don't need to know about the Napoleonic Wars to answer questions about your own product that you've described in the in the application. So that's where we're investing in building our own local uh, large language models that are, I say, just enough, right? Just enough to be able to to handle uh, answering questions about your own project, right? And of course, you know that's going to be uh, you know less expensive than using models that are you know commercially available uh, so it makes the it makes the idea that this could be out there in the public as a product that we could use beyond what we're using ourselves you could you know then make it a viable uh, SaaS offering with a, a business model so, that could make sense so so matt um a lot of times when you have a software or product like this um and everybody's using it i mean everybody's weighing in on what what it should be able to do and what it shouldn't be able to do and yeah. Uh, this is right. This is wrong, and they all they all have their own opinions. And so, while the designers of ChatGPT and some of the other AI programs coming out are probably listening to all this feedback, um, the the tendency might be to go overboard. So it makes the product considerably worse over time. Um, mm-hmm. And this what we're living through right now might be the best version we ever get um and so I, I i find things like that to be kind of an interesting question that um that somehow uh somehow we have to figure out a way to actually continually improve this product without without letting it go off the deep end um yeah. and uh, that's that's the danger of uh, of having uh, literally billions of people weighing in simultaneously on where it should go. Um, yeah, yeah. And is is there any rules of thumb in the UX world for dealing with things like that? Well, I I, I was very hesitant when I you know I mentioned before that I released user story generator. We did that back last year. Yeah, I was running before ChatGPT was it was using just OpenAI's API, and we used it as a, a as a, a mechanism to get feedback from product managers from to, to see how it worked and to learn from it. Right? It was a learning vehicle. 
but I was very adamant that, you know, this can get you started, but you should be doing user research, right? There, there's nothing that uh, should get in the way of actually knowing what your users, what your customers, whoever they are, what they want, what they're needing, what problems they have, and, and how are you going to solve them? Uh, to me, that is where you should derive your priority from. And of course, there are business objectives too, weighing that in, making sure that you're you're driving forward and on the right path. But um, UX right now is just giving you ideas uh, for where to go. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's right. And uh, I mean, certainly that's the case, even with ChatGPT, right? It can give wrong answers. And I think the general mentality has been, oh, look, it gave me an answer. It must be right. And I'm like, well, you sure don't know that. Right, you better go look. So, in some ways, it slows you down. I mean, it does speed you up because it can pull data from various sources and give you an answer. But it will slow you down if you do want to validate that the answer is correct. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the it, same idea with users. You you should be validating that the ideas it gives you are actually valid. That they that you talk to people and say, okay, it helped me think about questions to ask, but I need to go ask them. Yeah, so so it sounds like you're very much on the humans will remain in the loop for the foreseeable future team. I think they will, uh, and and this is this is where I see automation happening. Uh, automation, I think, will be able to take us to code generation, uh, and we're. I think it's kind of exciting. Um, let, let me let me jump back when I was in. When I worked at Motorola, uh, I worked on risk processors um, and SOCs. And on the risk processor side, they had what we would often term as a golden model. So when you're doing verification, especially uh, uh, you're doing uh, inspection level verification, so you're running test cases that were usually randomly generated, and uh, you're running them against a golden model, and you're running them against the Verilog, the actual uh, developed, um, you know, uh, logic model. And you look to see if the results are the same and the interim states are the same and all the registers, you know, where you thought they should be. And what happens is that if it fails, it tells you somebody's wrong. Either your design is wrong or the golden model's wrong. And the nice thing about golden models is that over time, they get better and better and better. So they're often correct. And it's usually your design is not living up to the spec. So you could say that that golden model is somewhat akin to requirements. So if you're moving now over to um, uh, the, the, the world of software development, you have to get to a place where you have requirements that the AI generating the code can derive from. So that's where I've been considering the fact that requirements is going to still require a lot of human interaction. You still have to figure out what do you want to build? What do you really need? All the generation that happens afterwards is going to be deriving from those requirements. Okay. And right now it is largely not automated, right? People, developers have to sit down and write the code. Designers have to go and write or design the, the screens. But if that ever becomes automated, that requirements portion is, is going to become a lot more valuable a lot more interesting right and that's part of the reason we're addressing central nia in this way is that the requirements of where 
if you capture that in one place, if you allow that interconnectivity to expose itself between um, your scope and your design documents, your develop your your user story documents, your test cases, uh, then you can enable some automation to occur later on, even so far as to use that requirements uh, that that source of truth as your golden model, right? As your model by which everything else is developed afterwards and QA if there's even any automation in QA, we'll be going back to that golden model, back to that source of truth to figure out if the code generation was even correct to begin with, right? And so that iterative loop, right, in order to get there. But you need to have some requirements. You need to have something to know, you know, what are you going to check against? It's the same in UX, right? When we design screens, uh, we design them in high fidelity so that developers know what to build and QA can look at it very easily and say, yeah, does this what was developed look like what was designed? Yes or no. Right. Have, have you given any thought? Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. It's a reality. Have, have you given any thought to, to hooking these things up to automated theorem provers or uh, program synthesis modules that are able to formally uh, verify that the generated code conforms to the specs? I, I've asked a couple of not people yet. at ATP. Yeah. Not yet, but we're getting there. I think we're going to, I mean, not we, we're, we're early in this process, but I think we collectively are going to get there. In fact, when I worked at in in verification, I I worked a good amount of time in in a, a language called System Verilog assertions, which is an assertion based uh, language for uh, used both in simulation based checking as well as formal formal verification, right? To to basically theorem prove uh, that that your that what you have asserted it will be true because of the way you designed it, and you don't need to run simulations against it. Uh, and I think certainly you can get to that point uh, with this, and that's why I kind of go back to the the stories and the, the experiences I had in chip design, because I think I see a lot of parallels for how uh, how it was problems were solved in that domain, and they may translate over to some degree in the software domain, especially in terms of generation. So, Matt, um, when the, a lot of people right now are are weighing in with predictions that say that um, within five years we won't need coders anymore, that we can or we can do away with a vast majority of them. And that seems to be kind of a consistent uh, way of thinking about things. My, my way of thinking about things is that as, as our capabilities increase, we're going to take on bigger and bigger projects. So I mm -hmm. think that we, we tend to not only need, need as many coders, we may, may actually need more coders in the future. It's just that the amount of work that we accomplish over our lifetime might be 20, 50, 100 times greater than it is today. And, and yeah. so, so I wanted you to kind of help step us through your thinking on that. I, I tend to think so, too. Uh, yeah, the, whenever any new technology like this comes out, it's the doom and gloom because, you know, <laughs> it sells. Right, people are tend tend to read the bad stuff, and uh, start fearing for their lives. But uh, I tend to agree that uh, 
this is a level of automation that will uh, uh, assist us going forward and we'll be able to produce more versus you know necessarily replace more right we, I think our production our ability to produce will will go um, uh, drastically ahead uh, and what we can do will speed up uh, which will mean you know uh, reduced costs for for development uh, perhaps but that means that the development team can move forward and, and work on other things. Doesn't mean that they're going to lose their jobs. Um, and, and I also think that there's a, if it if it goes the way that I was talking about before, with a lot of emphasis on requirements, um, that means requirements may not be perfect in the beginning, and so the code generated may not be perfect, even if it is generated code, and so you therefore may need developers still to go in and write portions that are uh, very dependent on um, on their involvement and, and certain algorithms that you want to employ. Again, I'll go back to hardware. In, in hardware, especially on processors, uh, you have portions of that and sometimes large portions that are created by synthesis where there's algorithms that go in and, and create all the logic for you, lay it out on the sea of gates that are, are just, you know, uh, they meet the timing requirements, they meet all the requirements that you need. And it's just, it's combinational sequential logic that just, you know, is generated. That saves a lot of time, but there are still need, there is still a need to have engineers go in and create certain circuits and certain logic because it has to be done a certain way because we know that's the best way to do it. Um, and, and, I think it's going to follow very similarly in, in software. You're going to have places where you're still going to need developers to go in and do it the way that that we have collectively determined is the right way to do it, uh, because we don't want to leave that to chance. We don't want to leave that to the AI to go and and uh, and do it its own way. But other portions, like look, we we have a lot of APIs right now. Generating APIs, you know, we try to automate that as much as we can because if you have a REST API, you have something on the back end, you know, it's going to return data from the database. Like there's a lot, we've done that ourselves in just human intelligence, trying to automate how easy it is to make back end APIs because who wants to go and sit down and write that from scratch every time, right? So we, we progressed down that path already through human intelligence. Uh, and I think we're just trying to accelerate that forward with AI. It doesn't mean we're going to talk ourselves out of a job, though. If if you play this forward five, five or ten years, what do you see as the call it mesoscale impact of artificial intel intelligence? Uh, do do you see web development having largely been automated? Do you see uh, new new frontiers opening up? Will it largely have been unchanged over that time frame? But maybe over the ten years after that, it will be very big. What predictions yeah. do you have for us? Well. You know, I, I tend to think that we're going to be able to have solutions created for us on the fly that do certain things that we need. Right? If you want to go and take an, you know, build an application or build an app, right? Mobile app, web app, you want to have some problem be solved. Um, you have to go and do the requirements, do the design work, do the development, get the DevOps involved get the servers allocated. You got to do all that. It costs, you know, it's a significant barrier to entry to just go and do any of that, right? Uh, we might get to the point where that is more automated than we we ever could conceive. 
Right. Again, you go back to the requirements. I think the requirements could be very important mm -hmm. for the rest of it to go and play out well. But if you can define the requirements well, then generating an application to do something for you um, maybe you know minutes away, right? Instead of months, right? Or or a year away, depending on the complexity of it. So it's going to matter more about how well you define it, uh, and maybe iterating on that. I think you also are going to have more, what I'll say, purpose-built solutions, solutions that you wouldn't have invested in before because it was too niche, right? It was too focused on something. And yes, right. Yeah, right. So and so, if you can automate that uh, and get you to a place where you can, you know, I need a, I need a sales, I need like a, a CRM to help me with this particular niche, right? Then you could have something generated for you and focus directly on that. And iterate, you know, con continually refine your requirements until you get something that's, oh, this is good enough. This is great. This is what I need. Um, so I, I have a feeling that that these application, the automation of generating applications is going to um, be something that we just haven't seen before. And that is going to impact us in ways that, um, you know, we're not, I, I, I've thought about it, but I don't quite know how that's, you know, what that's going to do for the rest of it. Like, what is that going to do day to day? What does that look like? So in the past, I've worked with entrepreneurs quite a bit. Um, and any entrepreneurship classes in college, they start off with writing a business plan mm. and the business plan becomes this major barrier um, <coughs> excuse me barrier to entry mm -hmm. and and people who actually have really good ideas for business who want to get off the ground they think they have to get the business plan done and, and they never actually get it done and so they feel like they can't ever start the business yeah um now with uh chat gpt you i mean you can put in uh, a few lines of the business plan and it'll generate the whole damn thing for you. Um, and it, and I always think about every business plan is wrong to begin with anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the fact that it might be wrong coming out of chat GPT is not a big deal. Um, but it gives you a starting point. It takes that barrier to entry out of the way. Um, mm -hmm. any, any thoughts on that? I, I think so. Uh, you know, we may be using AI in a in a very agile way, right? Like agile, what is it based on? Well, if you can learn during the process, then you should be using agile, right? If you assume that you know everything up front, then use waterfall to generate software. If you if you believe that you can learn through the process, then use agile. And I think that this idea that you could have a business plan and you could agilely create your business plan and get feedback immediately and learn from every other business plan out there, right? And models that are going to be trained in very specific types of uh, genres or, or uh, you know, uh, uh, corpuses of text, so whatever it is, right? If you have certain models trained in certain ways. Um, you'll be able to learn from different, uh, say, business plans and generate yours and refine yours and perhaps even on the side, have it start generating code for for design prototypes or or actual functional prototypes while you're doing it, right? Um, you know, people were doing that already. They were they were trying out something. Of course, there's a frenzy of it right now with people using uh, Langchain and and Auto GPT. 
yep. to, to see like, hey, how much does this know? Could I, if I just follow the directions, if I just do what it says, will it, will I, you know, achieve <laughs> fame, riches, and glory? <laughs> and, um, you know, people are, try, are after that, they're trying to figure out what do, what do I do with this? How much can it help me? It is helpful to know how these applications, how these, I'm sorry, how these, these language models work. And I have to credit, um, you know, when I, when I first learned about uh, Transformers, uh, I learned from them from a, a channel called Computer File uh, out in the UK. And I, I, I love those guys out there. We and, just, uh, I just wrapped uh, up an interview with, with one of their guys, Rob Miles, uh, the interview you, right before. Yeah. The, the one that's going out no right kidding. before yours is, is Rob Miles. Yeah. Ah, cool. Well, I, <laughs> I, I love those guys. I love what they do. I've learned so much from them. And I, I really feel like that, uh, uh, when you understand how these language models work, you realize it's not magic, right? Um, so it's it's on how well the model was trained on what you're trying to accomplish, and and you know you, you have to think of it a bit more sensibly. You know, if, if you if you think of it as a black box, then it, it can do all the magic in the world. If you start really trying to understand what's what's behind the curtain, then you can see what is it capable of, what is it what is it not. But um, uh, I, I I tend to think that. You know, uh, Thomas, what you were saying about the the business models um, made me think that we're going to have models that are more well-trained on certain tasks rather than models that are just as general purpose as GPT-3 and 4 and, and you know, 3.5 Turbo. As I said before, you don't have to know about the Napoleonic Wars to answer questions about my own project, right? And if you're going to use the LLM for certain tasks, you can train it. Uh, in, in, in ways that will allow you to do certain things really well. Uh, maybe interpreting business plans and giving feedback uh, and, and having information about how well these business plans eventually resulted in businesses that were successful and the parameters of that successful business versus the original, you know, maybe the evolution of that business plan to becoming a successful business, right? That might be an interesting uh, set of data to train on and then allow you to get feedback on your model you know, and tell you the sources like, oh, what you're trying to do, this was done by these other three other companies, and here's why it worked for some of them, and here's why it didn't for others, right? That's really useful, but the the AI models right now, I think they're, they're uh, the general purpose ones are general purpose, and they're not going to give you necessarily that that deep, that depth or detailed information that you would want to accomplish those tasks that you're talking about. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. I'm really excited to see the economic impacts of all of this and how it plays out. I share your contention that you will see a lot more bespoke solutions to problems I don't think I know anybody who has a small business or does anything at all who doesn't have some app idea, who's tried all the ones that are out there and they just don't quite match the edge cases. And when it becomes possible to summon the software, I just sort of wonder what that's going to do to network effects. What's that's going to what that's going to do to the economics of the software development profession? How that will redound to change uh, the way all these things work and fit together? It's like, are you still going to have? libraries of code or is it just going to be too much hassle to maintain them it just makes more sense to ask for it when you want it again you just want your fresh copy of things yeah. so are you gonna have some monoliths you, you have these giant software tools that that 
do something LLMs can't do. And then just billions and billions of these little uh, micro programs that are almost indistinguishable from each other, but nobody bothered to check because it's quicker to just ask. It's just, it's quicker to just summon one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I actually, I tend to think if we do get to this path where we're summoning and creating these little applications, even on the fly, we still may have a data problem. Like where is this data stored and located, right? And so you getting to it and having the ability to, uh, I mean, you, you could just leave it to a vector database to try to figure it out. But I think you do have to have some type of, semantic organization among all this data, even if you are creating applications on the fly. Um, yeah, see, that's that's where you the robotic dog comes into play, because when you need that data, you just go tell them to fetch it. Go get yeah. that data. And so data robotic, dog. Yeah, the data dog goes out and gets it. <laughs> Someone should start yeah, a company called it. Probably be, oh, okay. Got it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me get on that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, that's interesting. So, so you think so? You think data will be different? Because, uh, like, why why wouldn't I just summon a database, a, a, a bespoke data storage layer for just this particular thing? Why why would that be resistant well, you, to the LLMs, but the applications would not? No, no, no. I don't mean that they're going to be resistant. I mean that there is going. I think if you have applications that are built in the way I talked about, where they're they're built on the fly, then the data for them has to be stored somewhere too, right? And that data, if you want, if you create applications on the fly, uh, that data should be should have some type of um, semantic organization that allows it to plug into another layer, so it can be accessed by other applications. Right? When you build any application today, you not only have to think about the human computer interface, but also the interface between other applications, between other uh, APIs, and, and things like that. So I think. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to be impossible. I think it's something we have to consider uh, as a result of this rap, you know, ability to just rapidly create applications because the data it's going to produce may need to have longevity um, even beyond the application itself, the usage of the application itself. Well, that's fascinating. Um, do you have any final thoughts you want to leave the Future Audi podcast audience with? Some warm fuzz uh, that we can look forward to. Something, something positive. That... Yeah, we, yeah, we've been doing a lot of AI safety stuff. It hasn't been super cheerful. So, <laughs> no, I, I get that. Uh, well, I mean, uh, uh, super cheerful or super, you know, fuzzy. Uh, I think. Look, I, I think good things are ahead. Uh, I think, as I when I when I first talked to you all, I really feel like this is akin to the to the late 90s when the web was coming out and everybody's just trying to figure out what do we do what do we do with this and i haven't felt that way i, mean, I know you know blockchain became popular a number of years ago and and of course we had that crash but um the concept of blockchain is very interesting in and of itself i think it actually will help um with ai to be to be honest i think there's going to be some connectivity between ai and blockchain because blockchain can provide some level of authenticity to uh, information generated. And the problem we have today is that AI can generate uh, images that are, or photos or change things in ways that we can't even tell if the, if the, uh, if it was AI generated or not, but blockchain can help with uh, validating some of the authenticity of, of where it came from. Regardless, uh, and that's kind of a sidebar. I think that we are, uh, you know, in a frenzy right now 
everybody's trying to test and figure things out. That's what we're doing at Planorama, right? Our my R and D arm, we're trying to figure things out, testing. You know, we have certain goals. We we are, um, you know, for product teams with Symfonia, we're we're trying to figure out how to support them better using AI, uh, and and still, um, you know, drive business objectives and make people more efficient. Uh, those are good things, and I think a lot of people are working on some very good things, right? And and some will some will pass. And some will uh, die out, but that's how it works. That's how it worked in the in the in the Web 1.0 days, right? People are trying things out, and out of that, you'll have a a, a distillation process where uh, we'll we'll be left, hopefully, with some very good technologies that will carry forward and uh, and change the way that we uh, change the way that we work and live. And uh, that remains to be seen. And that's something I can't predict. Well, fantastic. Thanks so much, Matt. We appreciate your insight and your perspective, and uh, we wish you the best in future endeavors. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thomas. Yeah, thank, thanks, Matt. This is great. Thank you. That was interesting, yeah. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.